Hey everybody. Hi, hi. Before we get started this week, we want to let you know that this episode is a listener request. Yeah, 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 yeah. This book was requested by faithful listener Joe, who has been following along with the podcast nearly since its inception, and we really appreciate that. Love getting your emails, Joe. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a request, if you have a book that you'd like us to cover that you think fits even roughly into the wife fantasy genre, because as you'll see, this book doesn't completely fit, but we wanted to do it and we were into it. So let us know. You can get in touch on our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com, on Twitter at dragonbabiespod, or Instagram at dragonbabiespodcast, or you can just email us at dragonbabiespodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and we've got a couple other listener requests in the pipeline, so uh, keep watch for those episodes and make a recommendation because we will do it eventually. Thanks, guys. Now the episode. I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. And we're Dragon Babies. Dragon Babies. We reread our favorite YA fantasy classics and discuss why they're maybe even better for adults. Yeah. This week, The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. Quick pronunciation disclaimer. We know that his name is supposed to be pronounced more along the lines of Graham, um, but in my experience, I think that that's a, a UK pronunciation. Um and as dumb old Americans, we're just going to stick with Graham because we're not going to remember to do that every time. So Graham. Graham. Apologies. This, as we mentioned, is a listener request. It's a little bit outside of the usual realm of books that we cover. But in rereading it, I feel like it's more YA fantasy than I ever thought when mm-hmm. I was young and when I was reading yeah. it. So excited to dive into that. And I also feel like it, in a lot of ways, inspired Redwall. Yes. So... This is a clear yeah, predecessor to so Redwall. So yeah, it's kind of like, and it's from what, 1902? It was published in 1908. This is officially the second oldest book that we've covered. Enchanted Castle was only published was one year prior. Oh, so okay. really close. Madeline, would you like to give us a little cover description and marketing breakdown? On this cover, it's like a watercolor Maybe with like pencil and watercolor. Yeah, yeah. A, I might a, say a colorized um, version of some of the. Well, no, this this is a fresh illustration that's for the cover yeah. by Ernest Shepard, mm-hmm. the illustrator of our edition. He's really the better created the better known edition, mm-hmm. um, and his illustrations it were says in 1960. He drew it. This cover, yeah. yeah. But the illustrations that he made were, um, I think, first drawn in, like, the 30s because Kenneth Graham died uh, around then. Um, yeah, 31. Okay. And uh, it shows... And Kenneth Graham actually approved his illustrations um, as opposed to some of the later editions when he had already passed away. Yes. So that's cool that it's author Author sanctioned. And on the cover, there is Rat and Mole are in Rat's boat. Rat is a water rat, as we find Not out. Not a sea rat. Once he meets another rat, <laughs> then he gets an adjective. Um, Otter is in the water, kind of peeping up over the edge of the boat. Otter is looking real cute. You can see his yeah, little nose. Adorable. Yeah. He's the only one without clothes on. I also. know, yeah. 
Which I guess makes sense. If you're, you're spending all your time in yeah. the water, like clothes would be incredibly annoying. Um, and then there's Toad. He he looks like he's pulling on one of his yellow gloves. This driving. is like the cutest picture of Toad. Yes. Um, and there's old Badger who just looking at him, I feel an English accent <laughs> in my head because he looks incredibly... And a thick fog of wisdom. Yeah. Uh, he's got a walking stick and his nose is up and he's got a his jacket and his vest. It really wonderfully captures the nature of each of these five characters mm-hmm. yeah. um, in a single image. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. And uh, some of the lovely countryside. And too. it's a it's a really pretty cover. It's mm-hmm. very fitting for the book. Um, I mean, it's literally it was done by the original artist. Yeah. So of course Which it's going to be pretty unique i think Perfect. um when i think about older books that have been re-released um i think a lot of them tend to get new covers yeah which is you know the publishing house is like oh we have to make it modern for a modern audience and yeah. it's like no just stick with the source material if it's right totally. you know and since this is a very well-known classic i think it gets a bit of preferential treatment in terms of keeping things the way that they were intended yeah Mm-hmm. Back of the book. Since its beginnings as a series of stories told to Kenneth Graham's young son, The Wind in the Willows has gone on to become one of the best-loved children's books of all time. The timeless story of Toad, Rat, Mole, and Badger, brought to vivid life by Ernest H. Shepard's, H. Shepard's illustrations, has delighted readers of all ages for more than 80 years. That's it. Great. It says the wind in the willows, huge at the top. <laughs> I know it does have even a kind bigger of, than on the cover. <laughs> it does have a very imposing air about it. And this is one way in which I think the marketing of classic literature can actually turn young readers off because mm. it looks like it's going to be more austere and yes, difficult dodgy. than yeah. it actually is. Um, and the the huge typeface, um, the loftiness of the blurb and like the importance of the work just all kind of comes together in my mind to turn me off. That's how I was when I was young, too. Yeah, no, for sure. I would have looked at this when I was young and been like, ugh. Even though the cover is delightful. Right. It's just the the huge block text that mm-hmm. makes it. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And as a lifelong fan of Beatrix Potter, um, A.A. Milne's work. Uh, I I love little animals wearing clothes and wandering about <laughs> in gardens and forests and whatever they want to be doing. I that's definitely my genre. What's not to um, like? So, yeah, I guess I'm kind of veering into um, old and new impressions. But before we do that, I'll do a really quick summary because it's a fairly simple story, and I think you all know what happens in The Wind in the Willows pretty generally. I mean, this is a very famous, beloved book. And, I mean, this this has been Disney-fied. Yeah. Like, the zeitgeist in, is in aware. A more effective way than the black culture was. <laughs> yeah. Also, you know, much a much older work. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so The Wind in the Willows is set in Edwardian England on the River Thames in the Thames Valley, somewhere west of London. And it's about a group of anthropomorphized animals who live on the river and about their general exploits. Um, There are different character types. There's 
the mole who is kind of our everyman and he's new to the river and is exploring things and figuring out what this animal society is like. And he has anxieties. He has a lot of anxieties. I really uh, (laughs) felt a kinship with the mole. You do. You are a bit like mole Mm -hmm. in some ways. Yeah. Um, Mole's best friend, Rat, who lives just off the river and is very good-natured, cheerful. He's always down to help his friends. He is interested both in tending to his home and being on the river and exploring and seeing what's out in the world. To a point. Um, To a point. Yeah. And uh, he's kind of like just the, you know, good buddy sidekick guy to everyone else on the river. Then the next major character is Toad, who is a a jerk, really awful (laughs) little monster who is super self-centered to the point of causing bodily harm and physical property damage. Um, But he has his moments as well. He loves his friends and he can come around and realize that he's been a fool, a braggart, um, or just a dangerous driver. (laughs) A really dangerous driver and a car thief. And Toad is also very wealthy um, for... (laughs) reasons that we don't it's it's his daddy's money (laughs) yeah but i mean his where did his dad's money come from yeah i have no idea we'll talk more about this then we have otter who's more of a minor character um lives on the river kind of comes in and out of certain exploits he's carefree as otters he is carefree and then the other major character is badger who lives in the wild wood and only ventures out when it suits him um but ultimately plays a really big role in the con the overarching conflict of the book um and the eventual resolution when he helps them kick a bunch of weasels out of toad's mansion and throw a banquet to celebrate them returning home (laughs) well he forces toad to help him celebrate the banquet yeah um and that that's really that's really all you need to know i Mm -hmm. think is a cast of characters it's really the book is told um both through a series of shorter kind of vignettes that just talk about isolated kind of episodic yeah isolated incidents in the animals lives but then also there is a through line of essentially just everyone dealing with the fallout from toad's decisions um or like watching toad escape from prison and find his way home yeah uh and um it's it's great obviously this is a wonderful it's incredibly charming it's beloved by the world um it is funny it's charming like you said like just so it really draws you into its world it's very pleasant so lovely we wanted to do this to usher in spring because we here in seattle the cherry blossoms are blooming the scent of flowers is just constantly on the air if you've been to the pacific northwest you know that there's just this strange event that happens at the beginning of april end of march every year which is the air becomes super fragrant because Mm -hmm. everything just explodes into bloom at once um and i I bought a bottle of uh, 300 allergy pills It was the cheapest one by unit. I'm trying to paint a picture of the the verdant beauty. And you're like, um, yeah, 300 allergy allergy pills more like. It is. It is really beautiful. It is so incredibly beautiful. And there's cherry trees, the tulip fields in the Skagit Valley. 
are something we like to go see. We're going to the year. Tulip Festival next going weekend. To the tulips. Yeah, it's a really incredible place to be in the warm months. And Kenneth Graham captures a similar feeling of the joy that comes with the ushering in of each new season, especially the spring and summer, because these are animals. And although they're anthropomorphized, they still have their natural behavioral characteristics. Like instincts. Mm -hmm. They retain So they, uh, during the winter, they do at least partially hibernate mm-hmm. um, in the summertime. They sleep a lot less. They mentioned that they spend, you know, half the week going, staying awake all night because mm-hmm. they're just so excited. Yeah. Um, and uh, then there are also their preferred homes that they take. You know, the mole feels more comfortable when he's underground in small spaces and he can really have things close about him. Whereas the rat is uncomfortable when he's being stuck underground in a mm-hmm. small space. Um, but they, you know, they help each other find that they're perfect surroundings. Um, and, uh, and I I mean, this book literally takes place in the Shire. It Mm -hmm. happens in rural England. It's Mm -hmm. a very idyllic, beautiful, and it, they did, their behavior really reminded me of hobbits. Super hobbity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, from the, uh, just obsession with food. Yes. <laughs> to the importance of taking time for every meal that you mm-hmm. need to have during the day. And, and that's more than three it. meals. Not just eating, but really appreciating the food. Yeah. Savoring it. Um, I knew as soon as we got the discussion of what Toad was packing for them to go away in their grand adventure in their caravan that mm-hmm. he had just purchased that I was going to be on board because there was so, so much, much food, food to put away. So much food. Into his little cupboards. And unlike in Redwall, it's just people food. <laughs> it's just right. like really savory, lovely British countryside yeah. food. There's no, like in, It's not seed and nut based right. um, or fish for Although their only protein. they do talk about birds eating insects. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, is they do. Interesting. Because there's a class of animals in this book that aren't anthropomorphized yeah. and that they eat. Yeah, it's, I mean, they eat pork, these little animals yeah. do. And so beef. I, um, yeah. They, the stew that Toad has, um, has like every type of game bird yeah. in it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to talk about that more because there's, I think, three distinct societies mm-hmm. of beings okay. within this book, which Ooh. is different from very different from Redwall. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, but we should finish. Okay. Uh, but let's do, yeah, let's do old and new impressions. Mm-hmm. So I loved this book as a child, but comparing it to the others I mentioned to Beatrix Potter and to A. A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh books, um, this was my least favorite. Uh, and Ernest Shepard also illustrated Winnie the Pooh. And as you know, those illustrations are super important to me. Um, and I've really, really loved them and the stories my whole life. Um, I would read Winnie the Pooh and Beatrix Potter's books um, endlessly. Like, I've read them hundreds of times. This I've really only read a few times. And I think part of what I struggled with when I was young, I think for one thing, I was just a little too young when I was trying to read this. Because it's um, a bit harder in terms of linguistic level. Yeah, it is. Um Winnie the Pooh and uh, just Beatrix Potter's tales are written for a younger reader. The sentences are just shorter and simpler. There's less um, kind of exploring of the pastoral beauty. I don't think there's really any of that. There's a little. Um, But that's another way in which this reads more like Tolkien. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. 
a lot of discussion of why the surroundings beauty is important. And that's something that you can appreciate much more as an adult revisiting. Um, because I was actually falling through and picturing it instead of as a child, just kind of being like, ah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Like it's a field. Yeah. Um, so I loved rereading it for that. I also think I just got a lot more of the humor. Um, I laughed a lot reading this mm. out loud. Uh, and some of that was from the juxtaposition of the illustrations with what was happening the in the story. The illustrations are really great. Especially Toad's facial expressions are, are so, so perfectly good. captured. Um, just ranging from his outrage when he's in his washerwoman outfit. Yeah. To him being arrogant and puffed up when he's singing a song to no one, to an imaginary audience in mm-hmm. his room that he's been locked away. Yeah. Um, yeah, Toad was really wonderfully depicted by, uh, by Shepard. Um, and then just the way that they talk to each other is really funny. Yeah, it, Especially when they're the insulting each other. Yeah. Um, they really go for the jugular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and they go that. zero to 60, too. <laughs> like, instantly, just like, Rah! Yeah. Um, and it's funny because I've always... Uh, when we were, I'm, I'll stop talking soon. I promise. No, um, it's okay. When we were kids, we went to Disney World in probably like ninety five. I was very young. Yeah, I barely um, remember the trip. I remember a few things about it, namely being terrified on that ride. Well, right, we that went you're about on. To bring up. <laughs> we went on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, which is a dark ride which is well, you know it one of this anymore not in disney no. world it does in disneyland oh, okay um but they changed it to the winnie the pooh ride in oh, disney world the honey pots yeah disney released a movie called the adventures of ichabod and mr toad um, yes. many years ago yeah. i meant to write down what the year was but it, it, it's old i think the 50s um I still and get that song stuck in my head sometimes <laughs> from sing-along songs <laughs> yeah um and half of it was about Sleepy Hollow mm-hmm. and the other half was about Mr. Toad and it's kind of his through line story pulled out of Wind of the Willows and then yeah. just heightened for drama and yeah. adventure um, and the game is then like a loose adaptation of that um, where you get in a little car. Wait, the game? I'm the, sorry, ride. the ride. The ride is a loose adaptation of that where you get in a little car and there are actually two, there were two tracks. So depending on which way your car went, you would get one ride experience. Right. And one was more positive and one was really scary. Yeah. And the car went very fast and then obstacles were pulled out of your way at the last moment. And then you go into hell at the end of the ride and see the devil and it really freaked me out when I was a kid. So I, I didn't attached that, those details. I just remembered being terrified. It's, Maybe I was too young. To, it's fast like, moving. It's all in the dark. It. You know, it's one of those inside rides. Yeah. Um, and the hell part really scared me because I <laughs> no was, way. What? <laughs> oh, just eternal damnation. <laughs> Kids shouldn't be scared by that. But I was really preoccupied with religion yeah, when we I was were, a like, child. Really weirdly religious children. <laughs> yeah, I. So I talk about this and how it's kind of connected to our love for fantasy in the introduction to this whole show. So if you haven't heard that, go back and listen to it. I won't go on it at, about it at length now. Um, but 
I was really scared about even a representation of hell. And it really, really bothered me that the ride ended that way. And then I think I added a fear to the book itself, even though I had read it before. But then I was scared to go back and revisit it. Yeah. Okay. I think I was probably like eight, seven or eight when we went on that ride. Okay. Yeah. So I would have been like five. Yeah, so I think that Disney has actually made me dislike the book or made me dislike it when I was young. Um, And I'm really happy to revisit it now and see it for what it is, which is a lovely, peaceful, sweet tale about little critters in the countryside. Yeah. What are your old and new impressions, Madeline, now that I'm finally done? So I don't think I ever actually... Is my volume okay? What are you doing? I'm just going back to the episode. Oh, okay. Yeah, you just moved, um, so let me make sure. That's good. So I don't think I actually ever read this myself. I'm pretty sure it was read to me. Like, I think mom read it to us, or maybe just to me even. Um, Because I kind of remember having experienced it. Mostly I remember how terrified I was of the ride, but I was really, really young. Um, So I think that, like, I received it as a classic because mom was like, oh, you should, you know, have this read to you because it's a really great book to read to kids. Um, And haven't really experienced it since then. I do have a very vague memory of the movie, mostly just of that one song because it was in a sing-along, I think, that we would watch a lot. But that was about it. Yeah, we didn't have the movie itself. And it was actually released um, for television when it came out. Yeah, that's why it was like a They packaged it for home video once VHSs became popular. Yeah, and I I remember being really scared by that movie too. (laughs) I remember being really scared by it because Ichabod Crane dies. He gets his head lopped off and then Mr. Toad, like all this terrifying stuff happens to him. I don't know. So I found, and I'll link these on our website, I found two clips from the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad from the Toad section. Um, And they're actually like super cute and funny. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the the first is him seeing a motor car for the first time uh-huh. when he's fallen in the road and his eyes get all swirly and he starts poop pooping up and down. <laughs> he gets really excited. And it's great. And then the other is of them attacking the weasels in the mansion. Yeah. And in the movie, it became a huge chase okay. scene yeah. with a big battle. And they're trying to get the deed to the house away from the weasels, I think. So this piece of paper keeps switching hands and it's very like Tom and Jerry style. Um, and it's really fun. <laughs> I mean, that does make more sense about because I was just kind of confused legally about how they could <laughs> a future lawyer. Take his house. <laughs> I only had vague memories of it, mostly from media besides the book. Um, but I listened to it, a little bit of it, um, of an audiobook that I found for free because it's public domain. Um, and the audio don't have to cover your tracks. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> and I'm also allowed to listen to things at work. I wasn't. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> no one is going to get you in trouble. Don't report me to the ethics committee of the WSBA. Okay. And the audiobook that I listened to had like little 
burbling brook and like oh my forest God. sounds and oh like bird noises going the whole time and it was extremely peaceful and relaxing That's absurd it was like i was really happy about Just it actually heightens it to a level of yeah. pleasure That's yeah like too much oh, so too that, pastoral yeah it was really like soothing and nice uh and i really love the little animals like and when i say that I what I mean by that is like I really want little action figures of all of them like in their outfits yeah just to like oh, oh, what are you doing you know to play with them like the 27 year old woman that I am um, <laughs> yeah. um, and I just also I'm a huge huge fan of anthropomorphized animals in uh, stories always have been there's a lot of books that I've read where animals are the main characters. I just think it's such a fun way to do things. And I always enjoy how the author deals with tying their um, animal characteristics into their more human-like mm -hmm. anthropomorphized form and lives. Mm -hmm. So that was really fun. I really enjoyed rereading it. Um, it did really put a bee in my bonnet the whole time that there is absolutely no female animals. Yeah. I am worried about <laughs> their so, ability to exist as a species. There's an offstage mom of the uh, the little the students. I can't remember what kind of animals they are. The, the ones field who are mice? badgers. No, not the field mice. Um, are they hedgehogs? They're hedgehogs. Yeah. Is one of them a, a mom? No, they say our mother told us to go right home. See how That's hard it. you're having to reach to find the female oh, yeah. animal? The only um, there's a human woman in the Well, book. there's three human women. Well, I'm, I mean, there's one who really has any kind of role. She, and, and, and it's pretty terrible. Um, she's the, the woman who all Toad says of her. I mean, not that I expect Toad to no. describe anyone nicely, no. but he just keeps talking about how she's fat and has modeled hands or modeled arms or whatever. Well, and then there's the daughter of the jailkeeper mm -hmm. um who helps toad escape because and then there's she's the like compassionate right and then there's the washerwoman who gives toad her outfit yeah um and uh the i think the jailkeeper's daughter gives us interesting insight into the connection between humans and the standing upright talking animals that live in the world. She um, keeps pets. Because she keeps pets, but she keeps pets that are of the non-intelligent animal like dumb, dumb group. Animals. Like she yeah. has a bird and she has squirrels. Yeah. I don't think there are any squirrels that speak in anywhere in the book. And it gets, when you start to pick this apart, it, it gets messy pretty quickly, naturally. And I think also the sort of rambling nature of the tales flowing into one another and the questionable existence of these animals within clearly within the human world um, points to these being develop, developed bedtime stories. Mm -hmm. Like you can tell that they are they were created on the strength of the characters and then the larger world was filled in around them. And that's totally fine. I love stories, you know, really popular fantasy and fiction that's created from the author's bedtime stories that they told their kids. All of Roald Dahl's books, for the most right, part, are yeah. that. Mm -hmm. um, and 
that's just like that's what's gonna happen if you didn't yeah. start out with like a, a map to figure out where everything was going like if it's just born from anecdotes like of yeah. course it's gonna be a less you know well thought out and well plotted world and that's and the book I've it it does like buy into that like the book's not trying to pretend like it's carefully plotting out all of this because there are a lot of things that are kind of paradoxes well there are moments of great conflict between the animals and the humans there are moments when the animals seem like they want to avoid the humans entirely Mm -hmm. like that that one chapter that's kind of short and or maybe this is when they go into the wild woods when mole and rat are walking in the winter and they look inside the windows of some houses that humans are living in and they kind of see how like warm and cozy it is inside, but they're really careful about alerting the humans to them being there. Mm -hmm. Um, And And that comes early on in the book. That's the first exposure to humans, I think. So it's that depicts a world in which it's like, Oh, they have to stay underground. They don't want the humans to know that they're, intelligent right um but then uh, there are moments like toad being put into the criminal justice system like the human criminal justice system and i'm pretty sure kept in like the tower of london he says that he's in the most secure prison in in all of england and toad is also expressed to be the same size as human as a woman yeah as a little old woman yeah yeah and toad is very large as you can see in comparison to humans in the illustrations right and then but then you look on the cover and he's the same size as or in any of the pictures he's like roughly the same size as the rest of the woodland animals who seem Mm -hmm. you know in correct proportion to them to each other but yeah the way again it's a way in which you can really tell that these were like stories that were told and then sort of like stitched together. Well, and what I wanted to talk about is it's in stark contrast to Redwall where there was maybe some kind of human presence on that, in that realm, just in that society. But not Um, currently. But there's only hints of that. Yeah. And you and I had an argument. A in our, very long time. In our red wall My episode. mom listened to that. Our mom listened to that, but she agreed with me. So. <laughs> so if you guys are interested, listen <laughs> to our red wall episode. It's a mess of an episode. Listen to us but, fight. Um, yeah, check it out. Um, yeah, because there it's unclear whether the animals are living in human-sized buildings or yeah. animal-sized buildings. Here, but it's really clear that they're living in animal in animal size. But they also talk about how humans carved out some of the tunnels, yeah. for example, I where mean, Badger's home is. And um, Toad does not live. And Toad lives in a full-on mansion. Like, it right. wasn't built by Toad hands. Right, whereas, like, Badger lives in a burrow yeah. that's, like, nicely. F- most the of them live in, like, hobbit hole type and, things. with and with Rad. Yeah, yeah. which um, is more normal for an animal. But, yeah, Toad just lives literally in a giant house. And they house. have things like silverware and furniture yeah. and windows. I mean, it's not to the level of an actual you know, mole mm-hmm. hole. Right. That's why I say more like a hobbit hole because yeah. it is more, you know, it's not like a actual dirt burrow. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I liked this approach. I liked no, it's saying, definitely... okay, humans are there, but I also want intelligent, upright yeah. dressed animals to mm-hmm. coexist with them. And I'm not going to worry too Just much. Just go with it. Don't question it. Yeah. That's the vibe. <laughs> I loved Toad's time on the barge with the woman that he hated and maligned <laughs> so much because once she, once he reveals himself to be a toad, um, 
she treats him as if he is a common vermin who hasn't just been conversing with her and, you know, passing the time and boasting about his laundry skills. And she says, oh, an icky toad, not on my barge, and throws him off. And a lot of times, like, people... And treats him like an animal. Yeah, but, like, it... People don't recognize Toad as a Toad. They think he's really an elderly woman. So that also freaks me out. And then, <laughs> and then Mole also uses the same disguise, but that's to the stoats, I think, at that point when he can, yeah. says that he's a washerwoman. Um, I love how the washerwoman disguise gets used by so many it is characters. an important item. The disguise is super cute too. The, the high little value item. Black hat yeah. sticking up over Toad's head when he has his little dress on. Mm-hmm. While we're talking about the total absence of women in the book, when Toad is dressed as a woman, it becomes clear how awful it is to be a woman, a human woman in that society. Yeah. And Toad is so uncomfortable just getting out of the prison because every guard is like making comments at him. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no real explicit details on what those comments are except for at the very end when the guard is saying like won't you stay with you know a pretend passionate embrace that Mm -hmm. he's trying to make to her so clearly they're all treating her like oh she's an ugly old woman like of course we're not actually flirting with her but they're saying things that are making toad uncomfortable and that i'm sure the woman didn't appreciate um and toad just keeps commenting on how he needs to get out of a disguise of the disguise of someone who's like very popular around the area Mm. um and uh just seems like a total nightmare yeah, I mean, obviously, like 1900, not a good time to be a woman. I Better just, than some. But. The, the reason, uh, I mean, with my uh, cynical but informed by the actual society that I've experienced and others have experienced, I just felt like it was clear that Kenneth Graham didn't really care about women. Yeah. And why should he? I mean, I'm not excusing it, but I'm saying, of course, he didn't care yeah, about women. Like, he had no reason to, no. but it really just, like, and the thing of, like, he was telling stories to his son, and mm-hmm. it makes me sad that to just see this, you know, continuation of patriarchy in play, like, I'm going to tell you all these awesome stories about these red anthropomorphized animals, but they're all men because women can't be red or anthropomorphized animals. That's just simply absurd. <laughs> So something I learned about while researching the ep- for the episode um, and that I definitely want to check out is there have been so many, so many adaptations of Wind in the Willows since it came out, you know, film, television, other books, plays, A.A. Milne adapted it for the stage, mm-hmm. um, which is his like, interesting connection to the book. Um, there have been two versions made um, in recent years. One flips the class of the animals. So instead of being wealthy and kind of wanting for nothing. Yeah, they're all so bougie. They are. Um, they're aristocrats. They, instead of being aristocratic, they are struggling to get by oh. and to survive. Um, and money is a huge concern. Okay. That one is... That's what I really... I did keep thinking, like, these animals are so privileged. <laughs> yeah, so that is called Wildwood. It's by Jan Needle, and it was published in 1981. And it's a retelling from the point of view of the working-class inhabitants of the Wildwood. So it's about oh, the figures that they come awesome. into contact that with. That sounds really cool. When okay. they're in the Wildwood, and it feels, yeah, like it's a very different kind of society. Mm-hmm. Um, so I 
definitely want to check that out. And yeah. then just last year, Keige Johnson, sorry if I'm mispronouncing the first name, published a book called The Riverbank. Um, and it re- it the description I read of it just said that it reimagined Graham's work through a, a shift of gender. Um, cool. So that, I imagine has um the mothers and the daughters and the invisible females that populate this world yeah. but that we don't see or hear from okay and well, when you think about it these animals they don't do a lot of work um no they don't do rat, that's why rat I, does some otter definitely i think it's part of the reason why otter isn't in the book more is like we learn how otter is helping raise his children yeah and he sounds care like of things he's on the actually river. like got less money and more to do yeah and think like the moms and the sisters yeah. the wives they're the ones who are doing the work doing to keep the, work. the society running yeah so that's kind of how it they're comes just across. operating in the background yeah. and these are just kind of yeah yeah. I mean, that's for sure my biggest qualm about the book. Um, I'm not surprised by it and I knew to expect it going yeah. into it. Um, but we can't even do badass lady meter. Um, I, <laughs> I, because I, the I, women that are in the book are just plot devices. Yeah. They're like, caricatures and that they're, yeah, they're characters. There is some, devices, there is something really so. interesting that the jailer's daughter says, um, she says that she knows that she should never mention to Toad that she loves animals as pets because, because it would she offend didn't want him. to offend him. Yeah, so, which is also another layer of like, wait, yeah, how does, they're acknowledging how does this work? <laughs> they're acknowledging this other society. I don't know. It was really fun to think about that. Yeah, I, yeah, I really, sure. really liked that aspect of it, and um, that we were getting more answers here than we did with Redwall mm-hmm. too. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. We could pretend one of them is female and do a badass lady meter. The the male pronouns though were whipping around every which way. I couldn't even like Just try to pretend that someone was female. Um, we could, the 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 willows can be female. The yeah. the windy willows. They definitely can. Um it would have been cool if we had a goddess instead of a god. That's what I was thinking then too. I was like, there's so many missed opportunities, Kenneth Graham, for you to just <laughs> use the word she. <laughs> yeah. I mean he was very clearly writing what he knew, I think more so than almost any other book we've read. Yeah. This is, so he wrote this after he retired and he went back to where he had grown up in Berkshire, I believe. Um, and he did basically what the animals do. He mm-hmm. like walked along yeah. the river and ate and ambled and thought about his surroundings and appreciated the beauty. Um, so, these animals are basically him and I imagine his, you know, memories of being there as a child, yeah, um, that being makes there sense. with his family. Um, so he's very clearly writing what he knows and writing mm-hmm. his own experiences. Yeah. So I think that helps explain why there just aren't really women around because yeah. he definitely wasn't spending time with them. Yeah. Another link to Redwall <laughs> that I don't want to overlook is... A badger coming in and being yes. like a demigod. Yeah. <laughs> because the badger is, I mean, in the pictures doesn't look bigger, but he's larger for sure. But he's I mean, not as much bigger as, I mean, badgers as are Constance, huge. The badger yeah. from Redwall, who yeah. we are referring to again, go check out our Redwall episode if you haven't already. Um, but where he doesn't necessarily have the same uh, a difference in stature he does in uh, general wisdom mm-hmm. um and it's so cool that 
Badger makes his home at the heart of the terrifying wild wood yeah. that's so creepy. Yeah, the and, wild wood's really um, scary. On it, like, brings on hallucinations mm-hmm. <laughs> for the smaller animals who try to venture through it and don't know the ways of the wood and how to make their way through it. Which is another way in which their animal instincts are, like, coming mm-hmm. through that they're totally. terrified of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when Mole is there, he fully feels that a predator is about to... Mm-hmm eat him yeah and i think that really comes through in the way graham describes his visions and the sounds that he's hearing um and uh yeah what he's seeing in the dark dead tree branches Mm -hmm. i love that i love that chapter yeah um we didn't know much of anything about badgers in our redwall episode we talked about them and we still don't (laughs) you haven't learned that but I love that are just I know they're scary, uh, but I like the role that they take on in these stories. And Badger was, to me, the most interesting character. I love how grumpy and done with society he is, but he's so friendly and welcoming to anyone. Yeah, who even you know barges into his home in the middle of winter. I'm right. Like, okay, I'm gonna give you a nice meal and give you a warm place to stay. Yeah. Um, I like that. That's another sort of layer on their animal society um, that he's living on the outskirts of it and kind of eschewing the more civilized, um, I don't know, approach that the other animals mm-hmm. are taking. Yeah. Like you have Toad on one end of the spectrum and Badger on the other. Yeah. And yet the two sure. of them are still comrades. Yeah, they're definitely friends. Like that's why Badger gets so mad at Toad because Toad is... He locks him in his room. Difficult to be friends with. Stops loving cars. And the exact <laughs> thing that everyone was so worried about happening happened. So, uh, so yeah, Toad, obviously they weren't making any huge jumps or freaking out about nothing. I just couldn't stop thinking that Toad was such a little Trump. Like, that's <laughs> the only thing I could picture. I did, yeah, I really didn't like Toad. I know that he's supposed to be like like a lovable old grumpy I don't think he's supposed to be lovable I think he's supposed to be a buffoon that you laugh at um because Mm. in the end I mean Toad is nicer but it's only so that he can get attention for being nice instead of getting attention for being a jerk um and Toad is necessary because this book needs some conflict. And without Toad, there would be no there okay, wouldn't right. be any, any conflict. Um, yeah. Everyone he, else is so loving yeah. and they really care about their neighbors and their friends. Um, Whereas Toad just is conflict. Toad is possessed by his id. Yeah. Like he literally can't stop himself from stealing a car yeah. <laughs> and going on a police chase multiple times. And he and then he drives those same people whose car he stole and the same car that he previously stole off the riverbank because he wants to punish. Honestly, if Mole has problems with anxiety, Toad has problems with compulsions. Totally. I mean, it's totally. (laughs) (laughs) That a rejection buzzer sound. Well. There are these emotional extremes that the different creatures go to, yeah. um, especially Mole and Toad. But 
Rat also has a really interesting chapter um, that is sort of a little throwaway story. It's not mm-hmm. connected to anything else, but he's just lounging around and he's listening to all the birds talk about migrating south for the winter. And he gets transfixed by the concept of, oh, going south somewhere new. Well, after he gets grumpy that they're leaving because he's like, why don't you want to just sit around <laughs> I know, and I just chill hang out. all the time? That's the point at which I was like, Brad is so privileged. Like, I just, I just want to hang out. Why do you people have to go places and do things? And the birds are like, this is our biological imperative. Yeah, we have no choice. Yeah. Um, and then this mysterious sea rat comes walking up the road and straight up hypnotizes him with tales of his adventures. But then the way he describes the last adventure sounds like he's describing death, doesn't it? Oh. And it reminded me so much of the elves going into the West at the end of yeah, no, Lord of the Rings trilogy. It was trilogy. like the most, one of the most intense parts of the book, I think, where it just got very existential all yeah. of a sudden. It talks about the sails filling up and like going into the light. It's really And then he like really invites him to come with him, basically, or says, yeah. I'll be waiting for you there. Right. And, but then he says, I'm older, so I'll pass on, but you can continue on toward the South. And like, it's really strange. I mean, death is explicitly mentioned because he says that he'll pass away. Yeah. Um, and then Rat is in an altered state and like Mole has to snap him out of it and yeah. he like has a seizure. Very weird. It's it's weird. And Mole basically <laughs> quiets him by being by stuffing like a pen into his paw and being like, here, <laughs> write some poetry. Get, get your creative juices going. <laughs> like you need a creative outlet. Which is a good message for anyone. Honestly, yeah. It doesn't have to be poetry, but yeah, like, no, find like, an outlet. Turn to your creativity. Find a healthy yeah. outlet. Um yeah. Yeah, I actually, I loved that story. Um, I also, I mean, all of the one-offs I was actually really into. I liked the one-offs. I really liked their encounter with Pan. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that was really cool. I just kept thinking of the, for all you Breath of the Wild fans, of the the horse god, the one that's like translucent and Mm -hmm. lives on top of the mountain. But the stupid thing is only there like once out of the hundred times that you fast travel there to try and find him. And then if you try and register him at the stable, the guy's like, Oh, I can't register that horse. You can't register him. Anyway, at midnight. I did go grace. I went so many times. I tried so hard every hour of the day. (laughs) And his face is, to me, very chilling in the same way he feels really inspired by mm. um, the great being from Princess Mononoke, mm. who really frightened me, actually, because mm. it just feels like really powerful and knowing in like a terrifying way, kind of like a death way. And also too, yeah, unknowing, too great for a human or mm-hmm. animal mind to comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. And frightening, like looking into the void or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what th- that made me think of. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, Breath of the Wild, Princess Mononoke, <laughs> death. <laughs> and it was, you know, thanks to the the pipes that they hear and then the hooves plus beard, it was very clear that it was Pan that mm-hmm. they were seeing in the woods. Um, and I think that that also elevates the beauty of their surroundings saying like, oh, it's so incredible here that the gods themselves are frolicking, the gods associated with frolicking yeah, and with nature and fertility, um, or just sex, I should say, um, are Grace hanging out. clean podcast. I can say the word sex. 
I think that that's also a, a narrative device that makes this book more appropriate for slightly older readers that it switches between these short stories and then the longer plot line Mm -hmm. that you know carries through the whole book because toad first starts talking about cars pretty early on yeah Um, but then you get kind of distracted as these other little adventures go on and i also wonder if that it's kind of a nice emulation of how this different seasons work for these animals, how in the winter everything stops um, and they're not carrying on with the same adventures that they were when it was warmer and lighter and they were feeling, you know, their blood boiling, um, (laughs) making a witchy movements. Yeah. That's actually, I feel like that I kind of like that. No, I've, I did like the narrative structure. I thought it was cool. Like the animal anthropomorphic thing is confusing, but again, it's like by design kind of. And I did, I did like the speed up, slow down, speed Mm -hmm. up, slow down. Like it was, it really, it reminded me, it's like life, you know? So I thought that was cool. To the point where with the exception of the, battle climax at the end like if that was cut out you could almost look back at this book and be like this book isn't really about anything it's about i kept thinking that it's about characters and it's it's not about about living an event it's about them living and growing and having experiences Mm -hmm. together as a group it's more just their lives punctuated by events that happen in life so that's why i think it's more ya than Mm. a, a children's book yeah because children want like Beginning, middle, end, especially children now that are... They want a clear plot structure. And the kids are raised on TV and Mm -hmm. there's always... That's that's how it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that just inherently makes the story easier to follow, Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. um, When you're a young reader. Okay. So we've covered why we think it actually is YA. Let's talk about quickly, because it was a long episode. Sorry, guys. Why it's also fantasy. Yeah. Um, So I think one important thing to remember is that Redwall is unquestioningly classified as fantasy and it's really similar to wind in the willows in that there isn't actually no but his sword is magic yeah but there's like all that like arthurian type legend but there's but there are similar elements here too i mean there's a god that shows up um there are different moments of mystical figures causing like hypnosis Mm. um there's the evil wood Mm -hmm. um yeah no you're right i think there are magical elements throughout the book um they're you know coming up hard against like classic british society that's trying to do its best to stamp them down (laughs) stamp them out Um, but I think it has a lot of the same elements, but because Redwall is set in a medieval setting Mm -hmm. that feels more inherently fantasy than a more modern day setting. Although this is, you know, the Edwardian period, not exactly modern day, but, um, but I think that has a lot to do with it. It should be classified as fantasy in the same kind of way. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, not just because there are talking, walking animals in it, because there's plenty of animal stories that I would never call fantasy. No, that are their own, they fit into other genres. They're just populated by animals. Another, a book that this one made me think of is Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, Mm. um, which is animals in a harsh human society, human dominated society. And the animals are small and the humans destroy them yeah. um, and the animals are really at their whim um, but there are some similar um, 
I felt some similar dynamics in terms of the humans just being like, uh, and the animals trying to figure out their own place in the world. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is a way lighter hearted book than Miss Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, which is like pretty dark and depressing, but very Mm -hmm. interesting. So check it out. Yeah. (laughs) If you haven't, I'm sure everyone has read that when they were a kid. There's something we have to do. Dance, 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 pretend food, yeah, pretend food, my pretend one true food, love, food, 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 dance, the segment pretend food, <laughs> I have bookmarked a few passages because I didn't just make a list of everything they ate this time because the writing about the food is so good that there and were, there's a lot of it, there were um, a couple things I needed to, needed to just read. This is about Water Rat, as he's called in the chapter when he meets the sea rat, just to distinguish between the two rats, because clearly Kenneth Graham was like, wait, they can't both just be rat. Sea Rat has just finished talking about his European adventures, um, and Water Rat wants to go get some food for them to eat, and he decides that he wants to try to show him that he understands the delicacies of Italy and France Mm -hmm. and the like. He got out the luncheon basket and packed a simple meal in which, remembering the stranger's origin and preferences, he took care to include a yard of long French bread, a sausage out of which the garlic sang, some cheese which lay down and cried, and a (laughs) long-necked, straw-covered flask containing bottled sunshine shed and garnered on far southern slopes. Jesus Christ! (laughs) Grace is shook. I can't even handle it. What does it mean for cheese to lay down and cry? I love it. I don't know what it means, but I love it. And I wish all pretend food writing were at this level. Thank you, Mr. Graham. (laughs) A little little worked up here. Then the stew that Toad eats... He tilted up the pot and a glorious stream of hot, rich stew gurgled into the plate. It was, indeed, the most beautiful stew in the world, being made of partridges and pheasants and chickens and hares and rabbits and peahens and guinea fowls and one or two other things. (laughs) Toad took the plate on his lap, almost crying, and (laughs) stuffed and stuffed and stuffed and kept asking for more. That's how I feel when I sit down to a big, nice meal. Almost crying. (laughs) I love the hyperbole that accompanies a lot of the food items that they consume. There's so much reverence and just wonderful feelings towards food in this. It makes me really happy. And Madeline mentioned earlier, out of the segment, but (gasps) whatever. I guess I'll let us slide this once. Outside talk. (laughs) non-pretend food pretend food (laughs) that they don't adhere to foods that are appropriate for the animals that they are the way that um, the mice and others in Redwall do Mm -hmm. Um, yeah they have tongue tripe cold beef pate um, 
all manner of meats. They have no qualms about eating the contents of a stew like that, where yeah. it's a bunch of different kinds of birds, um, or seemingly cows, pigs, rabbits. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it gives us, yeah, just more clues about society by looking at the food that they eat. Um, I also love the moments when someone, like, gets upset because they realize they don't have any bread in their house. Yes! <laughs> a few Moles despair when he's... Like trying to entertain those people, yeah. which is also something that I really, really identify with. Yeah, that's true. Feeling <laughs> trapped and horrified when needing to entertain. I rarely am invited into Madeline's home. Not not that like it's because I don't like her. I don't invite anyone into my home. It's fine. And I like having people over and entertaining. So it's so great. It works out perfectly. Just, yeah, there is every time someone shows up at someone else's home, there's a great scrambling to procure foods for them. Um, also, when the sea rat is talking to the water rat, um, he, he just keeps talking about the shellfish. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, the shellfish, the shellfish. You, you love the shellfish. <laughs> he doesn't go into details yeah. there, which is really funny. And I liked that touch that the narrator has great care for the food. Um, but the sea rats just kind of like, shellfish, man. I don't know. <laughs> it's good. Um, then uh, it, there really is great care and love for the traditional British tea um, and all the foods that accompany that. Um and uh, I wish that I had a pantry and larder as well stocked as badgers. I mean, I could, I could be happy. Mm. Yes. So uh, if you guys have any pantry tips, <laughs> starting with a portable pantry because there is not enough room. I mean, I was going to say starting with a pantry. <laughs> How about starting with an apartment that has four walls around it? Because yes. that's not something this that I have right now. But we're trouble. not going to go. <laughs> into that maybe i'll if patrick kicks out of his room then we could turn that into a giant walk-in pantry mm. patrick if you're listening you will talk. sleep in the kitchen from now on Just put your head in a cheese wheel use it as a pillow it's fine exactly. very comfortable cheese great I think that's everything for this week for this super-sized episode about a super classic if tiny animals or <laughs> super giant animals because they're as yeah. big as people. Or they're just enormous. The size of washerwomen yeah, at the very maybe least. Maybe in this book, washerwomen are very small. Thank you again, Joe, for the recommendation. We had such a good time reading this. You go, Joe. If, like Joe, you have a book that you'd like us to cover, please get in touch. You can email us at dragonbabiespodcast at gmail.com. Submit a form on our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com. Add us on Twitter at dragonbabiespod. Or tag us on Instagram at Dragon Babies Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, something we missed about this book that you really love, if you want to explain to us that there were female characters that we somehow just missed. Lengthy diatribes. Lengthy diatribes of any kind. All are welcome. Um, let us know. We really love hearing from you guys. Yeah. And uh, we haven't had any new reviews since our last episode, so we didn't discuss this at the top. But if you leave us a review, we will give you a badass Lady Meter rating. And they're very fine. Highly sought after. All the listeners are wanting them, so please review us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. Until next time. Bye. We're going to talk about frog, toad. Oh my God. <laughs> Off to a rough start.
That's his entire identity. 